This is the PlaceOS podcast. I am Landell Archer, your host and sales director at PlaceOS. I don't have role models or idols that I don't know. Even growing up as a netballer, I never idolized the people on TV. I took my role models from the people just ahead of me because yes, I liked how they played, but I also liked them as people. Um, Rebecca Toss is one of those role models, a friend who is a few years ahead of me at school and netball, who played in teams that I wanted to make, who got the marks that I wanted, and who was just loved by everyone around her. Beck is now a CEO, consultant, and coach, but as you'll hear, she finds it hard to title exactly what she does, like a lot of us. I wanted to do an episode on data and analytics with a business leader, and Beck sprung to mind, so I'm so grateful that she gave me her time. And listen to this list of accolades just as an introduction. She's won 40 Under 40 Campaign Asia. She's won Woman of the Year B&T Women in Media Awards, winner of the marketing category B&T Women in Media Awards, B&T Women in Power in Media Power List, and then winner of Unilever um, Marketing Scholar as far back as 2000. She's extremely qualified to talk about marketing and data and analytics and I really hope that you enjoy this conversation all right I'm ready to go are you ready to go ready (laughs) Rebecca Toss you are the first CEO I've interviewed on this podcast and the reason I wanted to interview you is that one you're a data-driven leader two you're a CEO and three you're also very good at pivoting both in business and on the netball court, which is my little netball gag up front. <laughs> now, our, our audience are largely trying to put in tech strategies and the clients that we work with directly may have data-driven, adaptable business leaders, but they may not know how to engage them on tech strategy. And that's, that's a problem because something that they're trying to implement for a building and they're trying to engage their, their leaders into that technical strategy. So tech strategy and being data-driven are both your fortes. So I really wanted to delve into that today. So thanks for taking the time. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, can, can we first start with, can you give us some background on your career today? So you, you started in marketing and then um, that led into leadership, right? Yeah. So I spent the first decade of my career in really highly driven or craft driven executional marketing roles. So that's, you know, I was taught by some of the best direct marketers. I was in B2B marketing, media, creative management, right through to, you know, high performance, SEM, SEO activation. So it was very hands-on for that first decade. Um, And it was also in all online and digital businesses. And this was at a time when digital wasn't necessarily embraced. You know, Google hadn't really taken hold of the market. Um, But my cohort of colleagues at that time were some of the most innovative entrepreneurial um, people. And so I was really fortunate to just learn from, you know, the best in the industry. So now that training ground, I think, served me really well because that startup environment is not for everyone. but, though, you know, some of those colleagues have now gone on and most of them are now leading um, some of the best um, tech businesses in the country and globally. So I, I really valued that um, sort of start to my career um, straight out of university. And like I said, it's I now call them great friends. Um, and then following that decade, I went to, um, you know, focusing on one brand. I then 
went into agency land um, where I would then support many brands at once. I wanted to branch out into other industry verticals um, and take what I had learned and, and kind of help other brands grow, which was really different because typically traditionally um, most people didn't transition into agency. They would have started in agency and then went client side. So one of the things I always say, if I've, I've got that exposure, I know what it's like to be a client. I know what it's like to be on the other side and that whole value chain. Um, and then rewind three months, um, I launched my own consulting and coaching practice just weeks before the country went into lockdown. So it's been a really interesting three to four months. Um, and now I work with executives, founders, startups, um, anyone really or, or even individuals that want to tap into those decades of experience. Um, some of my clients are describing it as a fast pass to, you know, solving or setting up a business, solving a problem, Um and they kind of want my expertise and my experience um, to make good decisions. So, yeah, that's that's a very short summary um, over the last two decades. Um, and uh, it's really hard to kind of quantify or, or to articulate my exact role because I switch from being an advisor to a coach to a mentor to a strategist, um, you know, a lending ear um, for some of my clients. So um, it's a really interesting space now I've landed in. Yeah, I, I- I can I can relate to wearing those multiple hats, and you can't really um, describe yourself as one per like one sort of role. I, I remember having a client a while ago, um, and she sort of said she was introducing me to one of her colleagues, and she said, "Oh, this is Landell. She's our what would I call you?" And I said, "Well, I'm your account manager, your salesperson." And she's like, "Yeah, but you, you're not really like you're kind of our consultant, you're kind of our tech strategist," and I was like. Well, this is a nice way to be discussed. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, it even in um, sort of the last few years of my career, and you'd be out at a barbecue on the weekend, and people would say, "What do you do?" And you know, this is probably an issue, you know, for me internally. I would very rarely say I was a CEO because I just thought, you know, uh, I, I, so I'd often say, "Oh, I kind of I lead teams of people," like because that's kind of what I did. It, yes, I was running businesses and. I had the CEO responsibilities, but the core of my job was to get 150 people on the same page, working together, collaborating to deliver a really exceptional product that helped our clients grow. So it was, you know, that to me, majority of my time was coaching and leading. Um, so that's kind of how I described it. And, and, and even today, I really struggle with it. You know, what, what do you do? So... If you figure it out, um, Lendell, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to come to that leadership stuff because I, I actually have a story that I don't think you know. So I want to come to that at the end. Okay. Um, but I do, I want to start, like you mentioned, Google and transitioning to digital and, and your career is really part of that. And, you know, it, being a data-driven leader, we're, we're talking about so much data and for my clients, the data that is coming out of their buildings and their technical systems and, um, you know, it, it can be really overwhelming for some. So how do you know what data and what metrics are important to focus on and to orient to? I may have a bias here purely based on my my roles, but I firmly believe there's only a kind of main metrics that really matter and that's bottom line business metrics of sales, revenue, profit, strategic growth. Now, yes, it can, depending on the project or task at hand, it may be challenging to attribute um, any kind of activity or decision back to that. However, you've got to find a way. 
Um, so for me, that bottom line business metric is really important. And then the customer metrics. So that can be anything around acquisition, long-term value, loyalty, retention, customer experience, engagement. Um, they, to me, they're the core metrics that I view any business in. Um, it's it's definitely easy to fall into the trap of tracking everything, you know, being paralysed by the numbers that you talked about. Um, but, you know, there are technologies now you can, you know, track and you can attribute um, even just through media spend or any decisions that are being made. Um, your customers are telling you they're behaving in certain ways. So um, I think it's about getting the right team around you that view the world or view the, the organisation with those core metrics in mind. And if everything can be tracked back to that, it can be quite simplified. Um because, yeah, we, we have so much data at the moment and it's about using it, you know, in the right way. So I think it's possible, I think, where you can get, a, you know, a single customer view. Um, and, again, there's technologies around that. If, in fact, a lot of organisations I work with now, one of their problems is they've, they've got too much technology, that their tech stack is is quite convoluted and there's so much legacy there and, you know, with lots of different leaders who come and bring their own technology and then you end up with tech stacks that you know aren't working for them and actually unpacking that is the the, the bigger challenge so um yeah that I mean that's my view on it. it it may be you know controversial saying how simplified it is but if you bring it back to those core metrics um I, th I think that's where the the beauty of those beautiful decisions get made because it's, it's back to what really matters I think that's the best answer because it, it's such a CEO answer as well. <laughs> it was, it was. <laughs> and and but honestly, that's that's what people should be thinking about. No matter what role they're in, where do you contribute to that bottom line? Where do you contribute to that that revenue growth, that profit growth? In terms of our industry, people are trying to quantify what is the value of having employee experience. And so there's there's really hard um, it's it's really hard to quantify, but there's some great books on it. I think Jacob Morgan wrote one on the employee experience, and it came out you know 4.2 times profit for a business who focuses on employee experience. So when you when you try and um, measure something that seems kind of fluffy, um, you, I don't know. Some people can end up with all of these other metrics that really aren't related to what a CEO wants from their company. They want revenue, profit, and ta talent acquisition. I guess is part of that, and uh, you know, uh, supplying employee experiences is part of you know being a magnet for talent. So, I, I really like that answer. It's a, it's very much a CEO answer. <laughs> well, I think you're spot on. I mean, quite. Um, I've, I've witnessed, first, witnessed it firsthand, you know, in the businesses I was leading. I made um, diversity strategic decisions, um, which when you write a diversity plan, it can take three years sometimes to achieve where you want it to achieve. The more diverse my organisation got, the better the business performed. The more engaged they got, the better the business performed. So um, I've seen, uh, you know, usually for, for any strategy, um, that I write, I, you know, you, you get the vision, you get the pillars that support that vision. And then always underneath that, there are core metrics that I track on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis and a yearly basis. Um, and it always becomes a bit of a mass, um, <laughs> a mass scenario where you know what leads to pull. Um, you know, yeah, engagement drops, you know, turnover's high, costs 
of, of attracting talent go up, that eats into your profit. So it, it can all be linked back to that and it's kind of just playing with that switchboard and, and finding the right balance, which is, you know, and making it sound really easy, it's not. Um, but no, it, it's, it, it's <laughs> Yeah. It, it definitely helps with some of those decisions. Um, so, yes, we, we could talk about that topic all day actually. Well, I really want to know what metrics were the standout for you to realise that you needed to start your own business, even despite a global pandemic? I, what metrics for me? This, it was probably quite um, difficult to quantify, but there's, there's probably three that I spent most of my time gearing my decisions around. So the first one was probably time spent. So how do I want to spend my time? How do I want to spend my days if I'm going to be away from my family um, or, you know, literally just where am I going to be most fulfilled? And I think being in a group CEO role of a large organisation, you know, the majority of your time is in stakeholder management, um, which, you know, in itself I think is quite an art form. It's building relationships. Um, You know, you're reporting to um, and even being part of tech companies, you may be reporting to a board. You then may be reporting to an advisory board. You then have a global or a regional um, stakeholders. So a lot of my time, probably about 80% of it. And while I enjoyed that, I, I wanted to come back to um, spending more time with clients, um, which is essentially now like I my, my entire practice is revolved around how do I um, better their business? How do I evolve it? How do I grow it? So that was one of the key things for me. Um, and also just I, I wanted to see my family more, you know, being in sort of those roles. There was a lot of travel, you know, probably now when no one's travelling, but um, I wanted to be able to work out. I wanted to be healthier. Um, so I've tried to set up a practice that has pure flexibility. And even though I'd built flexibility into my businesses, um, this this for me was a huge part of what life, how, how do I want to set up my life? Um, that works for my family, works for my clients, and works for myself. Then the forecasting. So when it comes to, um, you know, the, the viability of any business, you know, um, you'll be aware, but for many people listening that aren't, my husband's a stay-at-home dad and he has been to our two young children, so I'm the only income earner in the family and I felt a huge responsibility to support the, fi- the family financially, put food on the table. Um, but once I let go of that, uh, fear or that responsibility and it was more about fulfillment um, I think most people go into business you know wanting to make a shit ton of money <laughs> um, but I think if you really ground your decision in you know a, a compelling relevant offering that you you know you're going to want to get out of bed for the rest will come um, so I think you know I, I did obviously map out financially what I how, how would I would price my product what do I think I could make how, you know what does that mean for the family? And um, at the end of the day, it, it really came back to what do I want to be doing day in, day out. And then the last thing was um, sort of, sorry, coming back to metrics was research. I spoke to, for about six weeks, I spoke to 50, you know, um, colleagues, ex-colleagues of mine who had gone out and started their own practice and I got all the gritty details that you know you don't read in books you know what is it like what what what's to expect and um that helped me with a lot of more qualitative research to get started oh that's such a good point bringing in the qualitative research and not everything is a data point if you want to understand 
you know, metrics and, and, and analysis in a holistic way, you have to ask the people, not just the data. Yeah. And yeah. very clever of you. Um, well, being so data-driven, um, I it, it was hard because I kept coming back, you know, like I was saying, if you come back to the financial aspect or, you know, for me it was I did a risk profile, okay, what does that look like? You know, I did so much data, but then at the end of the day the decision was very much a, you know, what do I, what do I, what am I going to be fulfilled in doing, and where, where are my skills and assets best placed in the next, you know, ten years of my career? And I think it is now imparting that knowledge to others. Yeah, I, I do the same thing with the time. Like, how do I want to spend my time? Yeah, it, which it, just, it, it took a long time. Like, I don't know about for you, but for me, it was a good twelve, you know, to eighteen months of really thinking that through. It doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Especially if you're, you've worked up a, a ladder, I guess, inside a large organisation, you have a lot of respect from um, clients, you've, you've performed really well and, you know, you and I are both ex-athletes, so part of that performance aspect in our work is quite important as well. And it, so when, when you have all of those things in place, it is it, you have to do a lot of weighing up before you go out on your own, I think. And then there's the, for me, I was riding this tension of fear, responsibility, excitement, fulfilment, back to fear. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I, uh, one of the silver linings, I suppose, of um, COVID was uh, it, it, I kind of thought, well, I've just, just got to give it a go. Let's just give it a try, you know. Um so for me, I think there was an element of, yeah, I'd done my research and I probably just needed that push to go, just just try it, <laughs> see what happens. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, so my my background um, as far as what I studied was sports science and, and everything there is about measurement and analytics for performance and wellness. And there's also a lot of psychology involved in that too. And you, you have a deep understanding of psychology of high performers to get results out of them and, you know, in the teams that you've led. And I really see marketing and sports science as very similar industries. Um, am I the only one? Like you're an ex-athlete who played at the top level in England, so I, I thought you might be able to draw some parallels between the two as well. Yeah, I, I, I do agree. So you're not alone. Um, I think sport has this ability to teach you um, grounding principles or guiding principles in, you know, working for the greater good. You know, generally most teams, you know what the goal is. What, what are we here to do? Um, everyone has a position. They know what their, their position on the team is. Um, everyone's encouraging. So there's all these um, values about being part of a team that absolutely I, as a leader, translated into mine leadership style I'm sure if you spoke to any of my team members I spoke a lot about many sporting cliches which you know they're probably rolling their eyes to anyone listening but it's um you know there's it, it's hugely important and I think as well there's the team element so making sure everyone's really clear on their contribution um getting stuck in when things are falling down but then there's the individual component so often I would spend a lot of time with any of my direct reports, um, first of all, understanding how they like to be led, you know, what drives them, how do they like to communicate, what areas do they need to develop. Um, so I think most leaders that are adaptable to, to the diversity of their team 
and how they can get the best out of them. And that's that's all you're really designed to do is, you know, for me as a manager, as a leader, my job was to help them reach their potential. Um, and everyone has very different levels of potential. So um, I, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think often you'll find, um, and I'm not saying necessarily those that don't do sport aren't great leaders or great team members, but there's definitely some learnings that can be applied to both in my view. Yeah, and, and a little bit more on the, the science of marketing as well. Because I can see, of course, there's like, the the parallels between um, sport and leadership, but even more of the science of what you've done in marketing and the science of what I did in measuring performance and looking at analytics and understanding wellness. Like it, it seems like you're using that same those same concepts in marketing to understand the customer, understand customer health, like happiness and stickiness, and um, you know business health. Um, and business performance it just I I sort of took a step back and looked at it all and and I've done a director of marketing role before in a small startup and I just found oh my god this is exactly what sports science is it's just analysis for for performance it's analysis for wellness Um, everything's about measuring testing and then executing right yeah absolutely (laughs) absolutely I mean um, most you know, marketing strategies or advertising or anything that you're putting out for someone to consume, um, you know, there's an element of you can do some, you know, some testing or some qual research prior, but once it's out there, you know, you'll get very instantaneous feedback on how it's performing, how it's resonating, and then what to do and how to evolve in it. Um, but I do think as well um, that, you know, the best kind of advertising or marketing really articulates the problem that you're you can solve for them and then the ones that do it really well speak to the heart and they tell a great story around it I'm a firm believer in storytelling and with my background in performance um I would also you know with performance marketing it's heavily analytical heavily data driven but I um also wanted to make sure our teams were bringing you know, the human element to it, you know, why why is someone going to watch that piece of content? Um, uh, it is, you know, are they going to think about it after that? So talking to the heart and, and mind is something that's quite difficult, but I definitely think when you can do both, that's where the magic happens. Yeah, so that's onto the neuroscience of advertising, right? Like I, I do a lot of reading and um, when oh, it was a really good thing that I watched it was just a, a guy out of Melbourne actually who's a bit of a consultant coach and he was talking about um presenting things as left brain analytical but with like so you've got to have those those um that information that shows you the hard numbers but the way that you tell that story is also right brain emotional and like how, how do you dig into the neuroscience of I guess advertising and I I guess I'm asking this question because when I deal with clients, so say I deal with Deloitte, for example, there'll be like 20 people within that organization who are part of the decision-making process. And so how do you appeal? How do you use that neuroscience of of what you know in advertising to affect that whole group? Because they're going to be such a diverse group of people. How do you get them all onto one page? Well, I think there's, when it comes to getting, because there's two things we're sort of talking about here, I think when you've got a group of people and getting, and different stakeholders, often 
any type of engagement or if you have an idea that you need to sell or you need to get people on board with um you need to understand your audience so to your example if there's 20 people there you know I would probably sit down and what do I know about those 20 people? How do I speak to each of them individually but also broadly at the same time? Um, if I almost, I, I called it stakeholder mapping, so I would sit down and go, okay, if, they, if that person's in the room or, or we're talking to that person, um, what are their needs? What, what are they interested in? What are they getting measured on? And you can almost pretty much when if you are presenting an idea, you can go around the room and call out, you know, five to ten of those different people and talk to exactly what is going on in their mind. I think where people fall down when they're selling an idea is they're, they're very passionate about their idea and their view of the world, but they need to also put themselves in the mind of each of those stakeholders and kind of preemptively, you know, think about what, what's important to them. Um, and then you can, you can tailor your message to any audience um, in that way and making them feel like, oh, yeah, she, she really gets me. She's really solving my problem, um, which is quite difficult to do, but it's just, you know, sitting down and thinking about it ahead of time. Yeah, okay, I like that. Now, on your current work as, as a coach and a consultant, I am just fascinated by consulting. And we, we have a few consulting companies as clients, so three of the big four, um, so PwC, Deloitte, and KPMG, we, we have as clients as in at least one region. Uh, I, I've just sort of observed the work that we do with them and it feels like to me that it's always a little bit ahead, even in just in terms of the thinking um, compared with work that we'll do with other companies, even technical companies. Um, why is it, do you think, that is it something about consulting where they, they intuitively know that, what they're doing will lead to the bottom line and that helps them think better up front or, you know, what is it about consulting that just ends up being, um, I guess it's just so valuable to organisations? Yeah. So my, this is a really great question. I, to be a consultant or to be in this space, you have to have, experience in the space and a lot of it you have to have wide and deep experience so often they will have been there before they've seen the problem um, they know what to do or they will see common themes coming out where they can apply a system or a um, a way of applying a framework to solve that so that to me is fundamental I mean there are many consultants who don't have that depth of experience um, and they may be gaining it in other ways but you know the good ones you know, are the ones that have been there before. So I think that's um, th that part's really important. Um, what are, uh, it, it's an interesting question because back, back in one of my other roles, you know, to the to your point around, you know, do they kind of know? Do they have the foresight there? I mean, I we would get to a point where with specific clients, we could take them on and we would say we would improve your results by you know an exact percent, and often we would land within a percent of that. Um, and that's just, yeah, and, you know, so, you know, we would put skin in the game and we could say, okay, we could improve or we would increase your revenue by, you know, 30%. Um, and if we do that, we can be, you know, uh, bonused or rewarded as part of that. Um, and often, you know, that model, we, we, we hit it every time. Um, but it, it, that's the beauty of something like performance marketing where you know you've been doing it, you know, you've um, 
you know, I was leading that business for seven years. And in that seven years, you can imagine the amount of data, um, and, you know, in the finance industry, for example, we had many clients. And so you start looking at trends in the data and you know if you do this and then there's a little bit of a, um, you know, a gut feel. But I, they, 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 I think there's an element of that when you've, you've got that information, you've got that data to call upon, you can make some really guided decisions around what you think you can do. And then, I mean, unfortunately, a, a big part of consulting work is the onus is on the client to, you know, take your advice or, or take whatever um, framework you're, you're wanting to apply. Um, so there is an element that, you know, you don't have that full control, but when it comes to confidently saying if you do X, it will deliver Y, um, I think it's it's purely from years and years and years of, of experience and not just that one person, but especially, you know, the companies that you're talking about, they've got, you know, industry-wide and global um, data to call upon to make those predictions. Yeah, but even in an emerging market that is smart buildings, um, the consultant firms, like so the firms themselves are investing in platform technology that's user experience-led. And that, like when, when I came into the business, it, it made a whole bunch of sense to me. I was like, great, you define your user experience and then you plug in the things to the platform that end up with your user experience. But the, what, what we found was that a lot of other organisations are very set in their ways, very comfortable with buying products to solve one specific problem. So like you mentioned before, they just end up with a with this crazy tech stack full of legacy items and nothing sort of talks to each other. Um, but when, when we work with these um, consultancy organisations, they really bring their own, like, like, they, like they're, not, they're not scared to invest. I think maybe they have some data even though it's an emerging market, but I think intuitively they they can tell. I don't know. It feels like they intuitively they can predict the future a bit. Like yeah. if you take a chance, it's actually going to work. Yeah, I, I I know what you're kind of talking about. There's a and I, it's coming back to again um, the entrepreneurialism of some of the colleagues I worked with. You know, um, there's there's different mindsets. There's there's risk averse people, and then there are risk takers and measured risk takers. Um, and I think depending on the culture of an organisation, um, and I've worked with many of them where, and, and you know, even in my own, I, I knew if I invested a million dollars here, I, I, I had a 90% confidence level that it would deliver a $3 million um, upside on the other side. So, yeah, you know, they're big numbers to some people that would be just that they would be paralysed by making that decision and others it's, it's like, yeah, that makes complete sense. Let's do it. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, you know, from a, I can't speak for all consultants, but it's definitely um, a mindset um, and way of looking at things to, to make decisions like that. Um, measured ones that they're really confident in. And, you know, like the, the ones that I've worked with before, you know, you're right. Like you sit there and you're like, how can you be so sure about this? Um, and it, I think it's a combination um, of having good data, um, a great mindset, uh, and then able to, you know, apply a lot of experience across different sectors, knowing that what it, it may work out. Yeah, I think it comes back to, like, the psychology of it as well because what seems to happen is they understand the potential of what they can do. They can understand at an intellectual level what the potential return on investment is. So they, they make the investment, but then they make that investment work for them. It's not just something that they kind of 
sit there and and forget about it's it's really I don't know it just seems that the thought leadership in I don't know I just have a soft spot for consultants <laughs> um you've you've also done a lot with um marketing tech in particular and and I know that one of the trends in corporate real estate which is where we sit is to offer flexible spaces in buildings where people can come and work so similar to like an airport lounge or um you know, like a flexible space like WeWork or something. And people are using and loving these spaces. And one of our clients has a building called Angel Place in Sydney. It's oh, got yeah. this beautiful. Have you been there? Yeah. Yeah. So it's got this beautiful converted lobby where booths, um, like they call them alcoves and it's got these desks that you can sit in. And and pre-COVID, um, I loved working from there. And I can see this big opportunity with an integration for marketing tech in that space because these flexible spaces are where their tenants so so people who um, reside in the building work in the building they'll come and work from those spaces but then those same people might travel to a different city and our client has other flexible spaces in that city to offer them but doesn't really know that they're there and there's this this mismatch between like, well, we've got these clients and we've got these spaces, but there's no way to um, connect the two together. So I, I can see this big opportunity for um, marketing tech. Have you seen it done well when sort of integrated with location services data, something like shopping centres or um, hotel experience or airport experience? Have you have you done any of that type of work before? We have, um, or my team has. So I think marketing technology should be able to give you that, you know, seamless customer journey, how to track it, how to optimise it, you know, right through to the the virtual world and the tactical world. So how they're transacting with you. So your technology should be able to bring all of that together and have a pathway so you know, like you said, when someone's walked into my office or they've purchased something or they've now read an email, you know, ideally that's what the marketech should do for you if it's set up well. Um, in a previous business, we were working with the good guys and we were able to measure and predict the relationship between when you, you know, researching for a product online and then you purchased in the offline world or in store. Um, we were able to do some buy tracking and analytics um, and then we could understand and almost predict the behaviour and the intent um, based on those locations or what kind of research you were doing and then we, when you would go and buy. So, yes, we have done that. So it's, you know, it's bridging the online and offline world together, which, you know, it gets even more convoluted once you look at all the different device tracking on tablet, mobile um, versus PC. Um, but I think there's also some beacon technology that we were exploring at a stage there. So, you know, once someone's entered your store and you've got your Bluetooth on, you know, you can broadcast the latest deals um, to their phone. You know, some people freak out from a privacy perspective, but really they're not tracking your movement. It, it's literally a Bluetooth transmission. Um, so there's definitely a lot of um, different things to do. I don't know if you've, if you've seen some of that stuff before. It's definitely not new. It's been out for a while. Um, but like with any tech, like we, we spoke about, it's assessing what's right for the business and making sure it's, you know, being used properly. But um yeah, we used to do a lot of location services from even searching um, with the bushfires around Black Saturday. Um, we were part of the emergency response um, using search um, and actually adapting to that um, down in Victoria at the time. So it felt like 
you know, we were really doing our part of the community when it comes to even just something as simple as search marketing. We were able to put out, you know, if people were searching in their area, um, an alert response based on the bushfires and evacuation procedures. So stuff like that is really exciting um, when you can see it being used in that way. Yeah, definitely. It's when those, because these technologies have been developed to sell more things um, in some ways, but this, when you can apply them to really crucial keeping people safe or, um, you, you know, other kind of areas where I guess they're, they're not as tech savvy, but it's just about applying the right tech to the right problem, right? And it's just, that's a really good solution. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I, I wanted to finish up with you with that story that I mentioned earlier. So I don't know if you know this, but um, so for our listeners who don't know, Beck was what five, six years ahead of me at school, five years ahead of me at school. And, um, and when you got your HSC mark, you your parents bought you a car, right? Yes. Um, I... <laughs> Yeah, I had a car, um, which was an amazing gift, yes. Um, and yes, with like balloons down the side, it was so good. Um, it was amazing. I felt like super independent after that. I was like, yeah, yeah I can go and make some money now, I can enter the world and not have to. Pay <laughs> um, yes, oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, so off the back of um, what you scored from your parents, I made a deal with my parents to do the same. But I said, oh, look, Beck is, you know, she's she's a world ahead of me. I don't think I can quite get her mark, but I think if I get over 92, I think you should buy me a car. <laughs> and uh, my dad, who is, you know, you know him, he's a legend, and he agreed, and I came in just over that 92 mark and they they held up. That's amazing. Um, That's so good. But I guess I wanted to say that, you know, it it was great for me then to have a role model who was a few years ahead of me and especially coming through a public school um, where, you know, you just had someone who was good at school, they were good at netball, and you were just nice to people. So that was always part of, like, who I, you know, had as role models. And I wanted to ask, do you get the sense that in your role now and in your previous roles, do you get the sense that you're a bit of a role model for other leaders? It's only when I get reminded of it that I think, oh, yeah, I, you know, um, I think consciously I don't think about it, but subconsciously I do. So if I can explain a little bit about that, I know certainly when I was leading um, in sort of, you know, the last decade or so, I was often, you know, the only female leader in the boardroom or, or in, a, in a senior meeting um, and so I think to some degree, I didn't look around the room until probably later in the years where I was like, oh, wow, I'm the only female here. Well, well, I, that, that, surely that's not right. So I think there was an element where I, depending on what we were talking about, I wanted to represent um, all the women in the organisation and there may have been a 1,000 or 2,000. So um, when it came to topics of returning to work and breastfeeding in the workplace and or fertility in the workplace or, or things relating to women that weren't being discussed, I definitely felt a responsibility to represent those people because I am 
quite outspoken, um, sometimes at my own detriment, but I do feel that I do need to share that voice. Um, so in that aspect, when I, it's funny when you say I don't see myself as that, but then I know I'm inherently driven to, um, I suppose, represent others that may not want to share their voice for very good reasons. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm glad to know that I, I helped in that um, getting that car. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they bought it for me as well because they were just, look, I'm sick of having to drive you to netball four times, like four nights a week and I'm sick of having to pick you up from all of these places. You're taking over our lives with your sport. Here's a car, like do it yourself. <laughs> I completely understand that, that world of uni, netball four or five time, times a week, netball carnivals. Um, so they probably just wanted us out of the house. <laughs> yeah, and they probably just didn't want to have to stand in the freezing cold watching us, yeah, like, yeah, training yeah. for the 15th time um, or 150th time. Um, but, That's yeah. Sorry, I, I did not know that. <laughs> I didn't think you did. And I just think it's great to, you know, I if we can end on this, I it's so good to see all of the success that you've had. And I think that anybody listening to this will um, hear how good you are at your job and probably get you to help them out with whatever their um, endeavours are. So I, I hope that really, you know, resonates with people because you've just been an exceptional human from a young age and you're just continuing to be that. So um, thank you so much for, you know, being that role model, especially for me and continuing to do that for other people. Oh, thank you. No, it's, um, yeah, I, yeah, you're making me blush at the moment. <laughs> um, but no, I, I'm hopefully this was helpful for listeners. Um, absolutely. If, if anyone wants to get in touch, I can, I'm, I'm happy to help. That's what I'm here for. So thank you. Yeah. Where, where do we get in touch with you? Oh, uh, that's a good one. Uh, RebeccaToss.com. That's my website. Or I am on LinkedIn if you just want to um, look me up there. But um, you, all my contact details are there if anyone wants to learn a bit, a bit more about who I am and what I do. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Beck. Thank you so much, Landell. Bye.